Matthew 28, that's where we're going to be tonight, and uh, we're actually going to finish up our series on the men of Matthew, and we're sort of cheating a little tonight because I'm actually going to throw a couple of ladies in there, so, so it's not technically just the men of Matthew uh, uh, tonight, but uh, I hope this series has been useful to you. I know it hasn't been like a flamboyant, flashy type of Bible study, uh, but I think it's been a good series. I've enjoyed teaching it. Uh, last week, we dealt with some of the cameo appearances at the cross, some of those that are uh, most of them unnamed people or they're just briefly mentioned characters at the crucifixion event. And, then, and now tonight, we're going to move past the crucifixion, we're going to move past the resurrection, and we're, we're coming to the final chapter of the book of Matthew. So if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> I'd like to read the entire chapter, and that's, it's only... Uh, uh, 20 verses long, so it won't take very long, but this is a crucial chapter that has so much for us. So let's read it together. Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended <coughs> excuse me, from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and, stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothing was white as snow. And for, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then, he, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Interesting mix of emotions there, isn't it? Um, that, that you can have fear and great joy at the same time. But uh, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Speaking of the ladies, he met these two women. Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to, to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. And told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money as they, as they, and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In, uh, in literature, there are those <clears throat> words, uh, phrases, or sent sentences somewhere in a book often that, that just seem to tell the whole, the whole story. The, they tell the, whole, the entire book. Words that just seem pregnant with the implication, with the, 
with the theme, with the, with the, uh, the, the concept, the teaching of the whole work. For example, phrases uh, like the opening line of A Tale of Two Cities, one of the most famous opening lines. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, uh, there are always those kind of sentences that stick out. Like uh, Hamlet, when he spoke to, to Horatio, and he said, there are, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy or your science. And this speaks of the sense of the brooding supernatural that was going on in the play. Well, the, the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew is, in my opinion, opinion a, a, a kind of a nutshell account of the challenge of the church from the resurrection of Jesus until he returns. Uh, but, but it's not only a summary and a logical conclusion to the book of Matthew itself, which it obviously is, but it's also, when I read it, it's as if God also wanted to squeeze into one chapter uh, something that we could say, this is what the church is about in the world until the return of Christ. You, you, you may say that, uh, that, that, that the chapter is divided up into three segments. Let me just give you uh, those and then we'll go through them. There, there are several ways actually you can label these, you can designate these different ways. You might call them first appearances, varying accounts, and the discovery of personal faith. Or, uh, or, or uh, another way to say those three, you might say, he's alive. Opposition to Satan, and now I know he's alive. Or you, you might call those, those three sections the testimony of, of others, the testimony of Satan, and the testimony of my heart. What, whatever you want to call them, it doesn't really matter, but there is a definite three-part breakdown of the 28th chapter of Matthew. And the first has to do with the early appearances of Jesus, particularly in the cemetery with the two Marys, and, and their account of that to the disciples. Uh, there's the second part, which is the opposition by the bribery, lying, and corruption of the priests and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And the third part is the discovery by the apostles themselves that Jesus Christ is in fact alive. And, and there's a delineation of the implications of that at, to them personally, and also to them as apostles and as ministers of the gospel. So let's look at these three, these three things. The first part, first appearances. Verses uh, 1 through 6 is the appearance of the angels at the, at the empty tomb. Now, as we look at this, we must put ourselves in the, in the sandals of these two Marys as much as we can. Now, it's really, really hard to do because it, it's sort of like seeing a movie of which you already know the end, right? It's, it's kind of like going to see a play while already knowing the storyline. You know, so, for example, if you go see Julius Caesar, the play Julius Caesar, you don't go there asking yourself how it's going to end. You know Julius Caesar is going to die in the end of the play. The point of seeing it is not the suspense of wondering what's going to happen to Julius Caesar. It's, it's the language, it's the acting, it's the history, it's all of that. And how it, how it ends is, isn't really a concern because you already know how it ends. And, and that's sort of the same way it is reading the book of Matthew. Because you're reading this last chapter and you're not wondering if Jesus is going to be raised from the dead because we already know that he's alive. So it's very hard for us to, to go back into the mind and the experience and the, and the spirit of these, of these two women to understand what they were going through. I mean, you start by saying, did they, did they really believe that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead? 
I mean, at a fundamental level. And, and, and this may be controversial to some, but I, I don't believe that they did. I don't believe that they did. They weren't going there to welcome somebody coming back from the dead. They were going there to anoint a dead body. And, and now, they may have clung tenaciously somewhere in their being to some hope that the things that he had said might come about, but, but you have to understand that they, that they had not had the benefit of 2,000 years of gospel preaching and teaching. They had not read a copy of the book, book of Matthew. They didn't know how the story ends. And, and so I, I believe in order for us to really understand the, the shock of this moment, the, the shock of this event, we, we must project ourselves into a mentality that arrives at the tomb with, with the anointing oil, with the ointment for his body, expecting to find a dead body. And only instead of finding a dead body, they, they, find, they, they find an angel. They, they find an empty tomb. They find the stone rolled away from the tomb. They, they find these guards stretched out before them as if they're dead. And, and, and I mean, the, the guards are out cold from, from stark raving terror. And so they walk up, excuse me, expecting to find this, this dead body in this tomb, but they find this whole scene here. And, and as, we, as we get this mindset in our, in, into our heads, then there are some key verses, some things that happen here that, that I want you to, to take note of and some things that are, to me are interesting. Look at, look at verse 8. Verse 8 is where Jesus addresses these two women. This is what it says. So, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. That is, they ran to tell them what the angels had said to them and what they had seen. Then verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Now that, that word translated as greetings, it was a very common greeting among the people of the day. Uh, some translations you'll see, they'll, they'll say something, it'll render it as all hail, which is pr pretty, pretty close translation, but that sounds to us, sounds really formal, almost regal to us, you know, all hail, you know, it'd be a little weird if I walked to you up, on this, up to you on the street and said, all hail, you know, it, it would just be strange for us, but, but uh, it, was, it was a very common greeting for them, so it really would be more like us, uh, me walking up to you on the street or walking up in, into this room and saying, Hi, y'all. It was a very common greeting. Hello, everybody. And, and the reason I make a point of that is I'm, I'm just struck by how personable this moment is, the genuineness of it, the reality of it in the face of the monumental events that are happening here. Okay, angels have appeared, the soldiers are out cold, Jesus is, has, been, has been raised from the dead, and he walks up to them and says, hey girls, See, this strikes me, it's, you know, this, it's just, I, I mean, here's Jesus who has been crucified, dead, buried, descended, risen, he's assumed his natural body, the angels have rolled the stone away, he walked out and he's greeting uh, his greeting to the first human audience as the resurrected Christ, he just walks up and says, hey, what's up? Hey, hello. It's as if it's just another day. Right? It, it's, it's almost ho-hum. And, and I love that. I love that moment because it, it, it's as if this is, this is an everyday experience for someone to come back from the dead. You know, hi, y'all, what's, what's, what's cooking? 
What's up? And I like that because of the commonness of it. Hello there. Hi. I like the genuineness of it. I I like the unaffected reality of it. It's the way that he had always spoken to them. It was just Jesus talking to them. When When he'd walk into a room full of people, he would walk in and use that greeting, all hail. You know, he would say, you know, it's just a common greeting in, in the Greco-Roman world. Hello, everybody. Hi. How, how are you doing? What's up? Just like that. I mean, imagine, for example, the resurrected Christ appearing here in this place tonight. Just, just imagine it in your mind. Because if you're like me, one, one always thinks that he, if he showed up like that, he would say something dramatic. I mean, doesn't it, don't you think that way? We'd be like, he would say something really huge. You know, if Jesus suddenly walked in this room, physically walked in this room, we'd be like, oh my goodness, what's he going to say? But one might not imagine that he would physically walk into our room tonight and say, well, hi, Dave. How's it going? How are things down at Restoration Life Church? We, we might not expect it. You understand what I'm saying? This is what's going on here. Now, why is that important? It's important because it means that the resurrected Christ is real. He's right where they are. He he just walks up and talks to them. He meets them and and greets them. And he meets them as he's always met them. The same man, the same voice, the same body, the same eyes, the same hand. He's not a ghost. This is not some spooky thing that's going on here. It's the same Jesus. He's gone through all that he's gone through and he was raised up to the glory of God the Father and he shows up and says, hi, everything's changed. I've been crucified and raised from the dead. The, the law is fulfilled. Death has been defeated. The grave has no more power over you. The law has no more bondage over you. Hi. And I know that sounds funny, but it's, it's, it's actually precious to me. It's wonderful to me. And, and I guess I may have, to, to some people's thoughts, I may have a little bit of an unorthodox view of Jesus, but, but I, uh, I always visualize Jesus with a, with a bit of a twinkle in his eye throughout most of his earthly ministry. You know, that, that he sometimes says things maybe a little tongue-in-cheek at times, and that he's got a sense of humor. A lot of people can't imagine Jesus with a sense of humor. I can't imagine him without it. Uh, uh, but, but uh, you know, he just says things. Like, like, here's one that you may not find funny, but I, I do, because I have a picture in my mind. Uh, w- when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' first words after having raised Lazarus from, from the dead, they're, they're somewhat hilarious to me. They, they kind of make me chuckle, because Lazarus walks out of the grave dragging these mummy clothes he's all tied up in, and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And, and I, that's funny to me because, here, listen, this guy has just raised, been, he's just been raised from the dead. And it's like, that's all you've got to say? Unbind him and let him go. You know, no, no big fanfare. I mean, think about it. The people have never seen anything like this before. And uh, what do you do when somebody comes back from the dead and walks out of the tomb? What do you do? I mean, they, they don't teach you that in, in, in elementary school, right? I mean, how do you handle that? What, what do you say to Jesus at that moment? Do you walk up and say, Jesus, that was amazing. I, I just really impressed with that. I mean, what, what do you say in that moment? 
I mean, I picture all these people. This is how I picture it in my mind. I picture all these people standing there with their mouths wide open. Their jaw is just, you know, that's, the jaws have hit the floor. Their eyes are as big as saucers. And, and everybody's just standing there frozen. And that's how I picture it. Everybody's standing there gaping at Jesus, not knowing what to say. Nobody knows what to do. And, and here comes Lazarus waddling out of the grave, all bound up in these burial clothes, and he's just struggling, and everybody's just standing there. You know? This is why I find it funny to me. He's probably, Lazarus, think about him. He's, he's probably standing there like, what just happened? You know? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What, how did I get here? You know, it's just got to be this weird moment, but he can't get free of the burial clothing, and people are standing around just in shock and awe, gaping at Jesus, looking at everything, and Jesus is like, uh, you might want to help him. That's how I picture it. That's how I see it in my mind. And I just find that moment kind of funny. Now, in light of that, you know, that Jesus is just so real. Jesus, having said all that, here is Jesus, so unaffected. I mean, so, so inglorious. I mean, the angel in this story makes a more glorious appearance than Jesus does. Right? I mean, the angel said he looked like lightning. His, his clothes were glowing. The angel was the one that caused the, the, the reaction of fear and wonder. And, and Jesus, on the other hand, he just walks up and says, Hi, girls. Happy Sunday. Good to see you. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. But the response of the ladies is also amazing to me. They fall at his feet and they worship him, clutching at his, to his ankles and his sandals and worshiping him. Him. And, and, and here's one of, see, this, the reason that's amazing to me is Jesus didn't just show up suddenly glowing in the dark and with a booming voice and saying, Behold, I'm alive. He just walked up and said, Hey, girls. And at that, they fall, in their, they fall at his feet and start worshiping. Now here, here's what I think that means for us. Here in my life, here's how I, how I would say it. The, the, the resurrected Christ is the most precious to me, not in some hyper-spiritual, otherworldly sense in those big moments like that, but, but it's when he is real in my life where I am today. When I realize his reality in my everyday life, when I sense his presence in my Monday, mundane, ordinary ex, ex, existence, um, when I realize that in that moment, he knows my name, and he knows what I'm feeling, he knows what I'm going through, and he loves me where I am. That's when I clutch at his feet and worship him. It's the glorious wonder of Christ being there in the room when you're lying in a hospital bed and the doctors don't know what to do. It's the, it's the glorious wonder of a parent who is clinging to his soul and clinging to his sanity uh, with his or her fingernails because of a rebellious teenager. Who, and that, when that parent is sustained by the peace-giving presence of Christ, that's when we find Jesus more glorious than we've ever known. So the moments when you open your Bible uh, some night sitting by your bedside and when, when off of the page of Scripture leaps this eminently practical Jesus who says, who just simply says, he doesn't say in some big King James booming voice, but he just says, hey, having a tough time with the kids? 
I want you to know I love you. You, you just, in those moments, you just want to fall at his feet and worship him. And, and I know for some that may be a very human view of Jesus, but I'm, I'm in no way uh, trying to de deny his divinity and in no way want to compromise on the fact that he is the second person of the, uh, person of the Trinity. But what I am saying is it is in Jesus' common identification with me in my humanity that I find him most precious. Now comes the second part. Jesus is alive, but there is this immediate, resounding, satanic opposition and conspiracy to confuse the church about the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 11. While they were going, talking about the ladies, while they were going, in other words, meanwhile, back at the ranch, that's how you could read it. Uh, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The earthquake, the angels... The body's gone, all this stuff. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, we spent time on this last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But but think about this. The, the religious leaders got together and came up with a plot to bribe the guards. And then they conspired together uh, to tell them what lie to tell. Can you imagine the horrible religious spirit that is strong enough for men to commit bribery and conspire to hatch a lie and impose it on the lips of other men and all the while feel self-righteous and religious about it because I mean that's amazing isn't it it's shocking uh, but these are men who are doing all of this in the name of God these are not the Romans this is the Sanhedrin these are the religious elders in Jerusalem who are bribing these guards and teaching them what lie to tell but but why for what purpose well they do it to confuse the situation about the resurrection of Christ. Whether it is a demonic book like the Passover plot from years ago, or whether it's by the oppressive boot of a tyrant who wants to convince through his absolute brutality uh, that, that Christ whom the church worship is dead and gone, or whether it is through the compromised pathetic theology of a progressive seminary professor, or whether it was just merely through the denial of my own flesh in the life of, of a believer. Satan's greatest desire is to convince us that Jesus is not really raised from the dead. That he's not really real. He's not really active. He's not really accessible. He's not really present. See, here's the thing. Satan is perfectly willing for you to believe everything else in the Bible and to hold to it with, a, with the tenacity of a, of a bulldog, if he can get you to just compromise on the resurrection of Jesus. Satan is willing for you to be theologically proper and absolutely biblically correct on 99.999% of your beliefs, as long as you leave out that one last thing about the absolute physical resurrection of Jesus. There are liberal, progressive seminary professors in this nation who have, have just made a shipwreck of their own faith, who, who teach that the resurrection was 
real, quote unquote, in the sense that it was that it existed in the minds and the hearts and the passions of the disciples, that for them, Jesus was so real for them. Jesus was so wonderful, so precious that their love and their desire for him, quote, kept him alive, unquote. And that the and that the specifics of the resurrection were nothing more than that the mythology that grew up around the love and desire for Christ, that he was alive in their hearts. He was alive in their heads. He was alive in the way that they talked to each other. He was alive in the way that they thought. But you know, I want you to hear something. You can be teaching the Bible and teaching about Jesus. Satan will never oppose that kind of teaching. He never will. He's not opposed to a person teaching about Jesus when it's framed in those parameters and they say Jesus did not rise from the dead. He will, in fact, he will not only not oppose it, he will dress himself up in suit and tie and help teach it. He's perfectly willing for you to love Jesus. He's perfectly willing for you to study the Bible. He's perfectly willing for you to have, have a PhD in theology as long as you don't believe in the absolute, actual, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's why. It is on that one point that every other truth of the gospel hangs. It's like what Paul said. He said, if, if Christ is not raised, we are of all men most miserable. Another way you could say it is, if Christ is not really risen, then we are fools among fools. We are the fools that should be pitied by all the other, all the other fools that have ever gone before us. If Christ is not raised from the dead. In other words, if Jesus is not, has not been physically literally raised from the dead, nothing else that we believe and nothing else that we teach about the gospel has any meaning or power whatsoever. It's useless. So the Pharisees were manipulated by the satanic mind which was behind them to confuse the issue, to try to keep people away from believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now we come to the third lot, the dis Jesus' disciples themselves. Look at verse 10, and then in, mo in a moment we're going to skip down to verse 16. I want you to see something here. It's very interesting. A couple things, uh, a couple points I want to make in here. When the, when the two Marys saw Jesus alive, he gave them instructions to pass on the, to the disciples. Look at what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now remember, they're still in Jerusalem. Because it's, the, just, it's just right after the Passover, the day after the Passover. And Jesus is, is saying to them, leave Judea and go up to Galilee where we used to work, where we used to hang out, where we used to do a lot of ministry. Go back up to Galilee. Now look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Well, which mountain? How did they know where to go? Jesus had not told the two Marys anything about a mountain. And I've thought about this, uh, and this is what I've come to. I don't know if this is a full explanation and you can take it or leave it, but, but I just think that there must have been some time, some moment. Perhaps it was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it was on the Mount of Temptation. We don't know which mountain it was, but we just, it just seems as if there was a, a mountain, a hill somewhere in Galilee, Galilee and at some point... In his ministry, Jesus must have said to, to his disciples, after the resurrection, come here, I'll meet you here. 
Maybe it was at the mouth of the cave in Caesarea Philippi where Peter had made the great confession where he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have no account of Jesus saying it, but somewhere along the line, Jesus must have said something like, this is the place that where I'll meet you after the resurrection. But here's the thing, just like many other things that Jesus said, the disciples didn't fully understand it at the time. I mean, how many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed there, but I'll rise again three days later. And still, when they got to Jerusalem, the disciples didn't get it. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel a lot better about my uh, thick skull. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? So, uh, but but they, they didn't get it. And the reason I'm boring in on this is this, this thing that they didn't get it. It, it. it just went right past him. Okay, so then, in this scenario, Mary, the Marys arrive at the house where the disciples are hiding out. And they say, we just saw Jesus. We, we just saw Jesus. He's alive. And he told us to tell you to go to Galilee. But he didn't say where to go in Galilee. He just said go to Galilee. And in that moment, the, across the screen of their minds, it came back up, up on, the, on, their, on the screen in their memory. And somehow they knew. I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but somehow they knew where to go. And the reason I point it out this way is because there are things that we will hear uh, things from the Holy Spirit, whether that be through teaching or whether it's through Scripture, maybe it's through different circumstances or maybe it's directly the Lord speaking from His Spirit into your spirit that, that, that do not seem at the time to have a direct bearing on our lives uh, in that moment. In, in fact, there are times when He speaks and we're not even really sure we actually heard Him. You know what I'm talking about? However, later on, they make sense to us. Well, the, the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to the place of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of these disciples. He's leading them and taking them back to that moment, back to the place that somehow they know this is where they need to be. And here we see the beginning of their personal experience. Up to the now, they, it's been Mary's experience, the two Mary's experience. They've told them what they've experienced, what they've seen. Uh, it's been the experience of the satanic conspiracy of the Sanhedrin. But now the disciples arrive in Galilee. Now is no longer a report. It's no longer a theological debate. Now it becomes their experience. It's the beginning of what this all means to them. So look at, look at verse 17. They arrive at the place in Galilee in verse 16, but then their reaction to this begins in verse 17. And there's a, there's a statement here, it's just almost mind-blowing to me, but it also brings us some comfort. He says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, I would expect there to be a period. But it doesn't end there, does it? It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's always, that's always been amazing to me, okay? Because they have seen Jesus crucified, they've seen him beaten, and now they see him alive, and not like alive all jacked up, you know, barely walking, can't, you know, but alive and looking glorious. And, and still in that moment, they see this and they're like, I don't know. And, 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 and here's, that's actually comforting to me. 
You see, as we begin, both as individuals and corporately as a body, as we begin to move into a deeper personal experience with the resurrected Christ, and listen, if you don't, if you don't get anything else tonight, you, you need to get this. As we begin to move into that deeper personal experience with the resurrected Christ, do not be shocked at yourself when there are trace elements of doubt mixed in with your richest spiritual experience. Sometimes I think that people lose faith or they lose heart and sometimes even are, you know, they're hurt with themselves and sometimes even back away from God because they're, they're so confused by these moments because they have this deep experience with Christ. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They get saved. They have a healing, whatever. And then weeks later or months later, and sometimes even after they've walked with God for years, they find themselves experiencing doubt at one level or another. Listen, there is... Nothing in Scripture that tells us that we ought not to expect those kinds of things to arise uh, within ourselves and from ourselves. It, doubt may come from your emotions. It may come from your mind. It may come from the opposition of Satan. It may come from confusion that arises in difficult circumstances. It can come from a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. It's not that you have to suddenly eradicate doubt. It's how do you handle it when it comes? I mean, look at the disciples. No wonder the disciples are doubting. I mean, these, these, these guards in the Sanhedrin had spread the word all over Jerusalem that it had been a trick. Now, they knew they hadn't stolen the body of Jesus, but what if somebody else did? Somebody's stolen the body of Jesus. That's what they've been told. He's not really raised from the dead. And other people were saying that he never really died, that they just took him down off the cross early before he died, and then they just pretended to bury him. And then he got up from the, quote, dead, unquote, and then he walked out of the graveyard that way. And, and on top of that, as I said, like with the Marys, they had not had 2,000 years of gospel teaching about the resurrection, so they're struggling with the issue of the resurrected Christ. This is a new thing. It's, it's okay to be struggling with trying to figure out this brand new thing that's happening. And it's the same thing in our lives. When the Lord does something new in our lives, it's, it's not unusual to experience some level of doubt in that process, but it's whether or not you let those doubts take over in your life or whether you begin to deal with them and say, listen, I know what I know. These disciples that doubted, all they had to do is say, wait a minute, I've walked with Jesus for three years. I know that's him. That's his voice. That's his eyes. Those are his hands. I still see the, the nail prints in them. I know that that's Jesus. And so this doubt that I have is unreasonable. You have to deal with it in that way. But, but they recognize him and they worship him. But there's this trace element of doubt. And that may happen in each of our lives from time to time. But it, here's the thing. I think we need to understand because sometimes, here's what I've learned, we tend to be more gracious with ourselves in a lot of ways. Uh, another way to say it is this, we tend to judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. So if somebody does something, we judge their action regardless, and we don't care what their intention was. But if we do something wrong, but we didn't mean to, then we should be forgiven. So we, we tend to give ourselves, cut ourselves a little more slack. Well, I think the same thing is true when somebody is dealing with doubt. We need to have the latitude to be able to tolerate the doubts of others while they learn to worship, even as we ourselves are learning to worship. 
You know, you know the, the next verse is wonderful. It says in verse 17 that they saw Jesus and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And what would you think the next verse would say? What would you expect Jesus to say to that? I mean, personally, I would have, I would have expected Jesus to look at the, at the crowd, you know, and saying, you know, okay, some are worshiping, some are doubting, you know. I would have expected him to say, all right, uh, you, you're in, uh, you're out, you're in, you're in. Uh, okay, you, you can stay, but you, you got to go, sorry. You're in, you're in, you're out, and, and you, you're hanging by a thread. That, that's what I would expect, because he knows who's doubting. But isn't it wonderful that that's not what he said in the next verse? That means that Jesus was not threatened by their doubts. Instead, he ministered to them at the point of their doubts. Jesus was not shaken by the fact that even as they're looking at him, they're struggling with doubt. It seems to me that, that he might have wanted to say to them, what's, what's the matter with you? You know, are you, are you blind or are you stupid? Because I'm right here. Here I am. But instead, how wonderful is, is Jesus' response when you understand verse 18? This is what he said. And Jesus came and said to them, and can I just parenthetically insert the word all there? Because I think it captures the meaning of it. Jesus came and said to them all, those who worshipped and those who, who doubted alike, Jesus came and said to them all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the most important verse in all of the book of Matthew. This is it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus here is stating his claim categorically. No more parables. No more mystifying sayings, no more wandering, convoluted observations about seeds and plants and sheep and lost things. Now he is stating it categorically. He lays claim to full cosmic ownership. Everything that, was, that, was, uh, everything that is was made by me. It has returned to me. I am the Lord. I am the King. I have made you. I'm the resurrected Christ. I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm the pre-existent co-eternal Word of God. And I will return as triumphant judge. All authority, all power, all righteousness, all glory. He is now announcing himself to them as the King of heaven as the king of earth, as the king of all of human history. And that must have been an absolutely exhilarating moment for them. Do you, do you understand what they must have felt in that moment? Think about it. Here are these men. They have pinned their hopes to a wandering messianic rabbi with the power to heal and the power to walk on water. These men who have, have seen their hopes entombed with his dead body. They've seen their, their, their dreams of messianic glory ripped to shreds as the Roman whips ripped the, 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 the back of Jesus uh, to shreds. They, they, they have heard these vague, rumbl uh, vague rumblings that perhaps he's alive. Maybe he isn't, maybe he isn't, maybe he is. Uh, but they, they, they come before him and they see him and some are worshiping, but some are struggling. And there's, oh, I, I want to believe. I, I want to believe. I just don't know. I've heard this. I've heard that. And, and I, I wonder if there's anybody here who is in this whole church who's ever really struggled with doubt. I've, do, do you know, it seems to me we can confess every kind of sin in the world to each other. 
But I very seldom hear anybody over the age of 30 confess that they struggle with doubt. Teenagers often will. College students will in, 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 a, in a New York minute. However, I have very seldom heard anybody over age of 30 confess that they ever struggle with doubt. And, and I, I don't believe it's because we have overcome all our doubts. I think it is particularly, at least partially, because we find that it is socially unacceptable to ever express doubt in church. And we're afraid what other people are going to think. I think we just simply stop talking about it. That's what I think. However, I think in the deep, dark back alleys of our minds and our hearts, there are people who have walked with God for 50 years who in a moment of grief, in a moment or, uh, of loneliness, in a moment of pain, that, that they begin to say, I know what I've always believed. I know what I've always taught. I know but I wonder, I just wonder. And I, I believe that, there, that, that is, it, it is in those moments that the real down-to-earth present experience of Christ as the resurrected Lord comes to us in that moment and says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I think that's just the, the, the most exhilarating passage, one of the most exhilarating passages, passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. To know that in my moment of doubt, Jesus is not looking at me and saying, come on, get it together. What's your deal? I'm standing right here. You've seen too much. How could you possibly doubt after everything that I've done? Instead, he looks at them and says, don't worry. I got you covered. I got all authority. I'm the king of the universe. You can, you can rely on me. You can trust me. That's the moment. This is an exhilarating moment. Now, in closing, I want you to look at the last couple verses. I want, you, I want you to pay attention to the first two words of verse 19. Look at it. It says, and yours is going to say some variation of this in the ESV. It says this way. It just says, go, therefore. Yours might say, therefore, Go. Or something like that. But it's going to be something like that. It might be two or three words, you know, uh, depending on your translation. It says, go, therefore. You know, sometimes just as an experiment, take, take one of the books of the Bible. Matthew would be a good one to do this with. And, and read the entire book based on the word, therefore. Just go through the entire book and underline or circle every place where it says, therefore. Circle it. Underline it. Um. Because here's what we know. Therefore is a bridge word. It is a word that is a bridge between a fact and a result. So, uh, so sometime go through, read a whole book of the Bible based on the word therefore and, and see what you come up with. Now let's do it right here in closing. What, what two things does this word therefore connect? I think the first question you have to ask is on what fact... Is Jesus basing his therefore? What is it? Well, Jesus is basing this therefore on the fact that he is Lord. That he is resurrected. That, that all authority has, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is raised from the dead and he is the absolute, absolute Lord. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. We, this is what we have to get. We have to get this in our minds. I, I think that we, sometimes we have the idea 
that, 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 that the going is optional. That there are those who are uh, particularly better at, uh, at it or more gifted at it or more diligent at it or more serious about it. That there are those kinds of people that just kind of like that stuff or something. But I think we sometimes forget that this is a command of the resurrected Christ. He is saying, if I am the sovereign Lord of the universe, if, uh, if I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe, if I'm the Lord of all that is and all that ever will be, then I am the Lord of your personal destiny as well. Go, therefore. This is not like hints for happy living. This is the command of Christ. And I'm coming to believe more and more and more that, the, that for the modern American Christian, the real dividing point, the, the real line of demarcation between those who are really going to move on with God and those who are not going to move on with God, I'm coming to believe more and more that that line is the line of the willingness by those Christians to speak a word for God. Willingness to speak up for, and, and tell somebody about Jesus. Willingness to, to stand tall and, and say, I want you to know about my Lord. You know that there are people who have gone to church their entire lives. I mean, 40, 50, 60 years. And they have, they have not only never won anybody to Christ, but they have never even given anybody a meaningful encounter with Christ. Furthermore, there are people who have been in the church for 40, 50, 60 years who have never even invited anybody to church. They've, they've never opened their mouth. They've, they've, they've never even once in any way that is personally meaningful ever been serious about trying to obey the command to go make disciples of all nations, to go into all the world. Now, listen, not everybody is told to go to Africa and to preach the gospel there and endure the affliction of malaria. Not, not everybody is told to do that. We know that very clearly. In fact, the truth is, uh, you should not go unless you're called as a missionary, but I, I like it the way somebody said, somebody said, uh, you should only stay home from the mission field if you're called to stay home. The, the reality is, either way, you're called. Not everybody is going to go to Africa to, do all the, to preach the gospel. However, every believer is told that he or she must act meaningfully on this great pinion of truth, on this command to go therefore into all the world. It's a command of God to us. And I don't mean for this to, to come across hard. It's just that I don't see any other way to get around it. We have to understand this was not a suggestion. This is a commission. This is a command of Christ. There must, hear me, there must be some way in which I have to put words to that command, that I have to put feet to that command. My actions and my words must somehow reflect that I understand this commission. I heard a story, and I actually shared this story not too long ago, but, um, and if you've heard it before, you can just nod your head and pretend like you haven't. Uh, that's what I ask everybody to do with my stories. I only know so many stories. That's the problem, see. So, but, but there's a man who came to a pastor of an Assemblies of God church, and he said, he said Pastor, I'm, I'm uh, not a member of your church. I've never been here before. I'm a visitor, but I want to, I want to tell you what has happened, and then I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. He went on and he said, I spent the last 30 years pretty much drunk, 
But two, two months ago, I had a wonderful deliverance experience. Christ came into my life. I got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the bondage of alcoholism in my life was broken. He said, I went, I went to a barber shop to which I had been going for my entire 30 years that I was an alcoholic. I sat down in that barber chair, and my barber, who's, who's been my barber for all those years, looked at me and he said, well, what can I do for you today? He said, I turned to, the, to the bar, my barber and I said, well, it's actually not a question of what you can do for me today. It's what I can do for you. He said, I want to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's come into my life. I've been born again. I've been delivered from alcoholism. And I would, I would like to invite you to come to church with me. I want you to know what Jesus means to me. And he said, that barber looked at me and he laughed. And he said, well, John, are you? Are you trying to win me to Christ? He said, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I'm a, I'm a member of such and such a church. And the man said, that just infuriated me. He said, I jumped up out of that barber chair and said, what? I've been coming to your barbershop for 30 years. I came with liquor on my breath. I came in stumbling and falling down drunk. I came and poured my heart out to you. I told you that my wife was leaving because of my problems with alcohol. I told you that I was losing job after job after job, that I'd been through career after career. I've told you that I was lonely. I told you that I was fearful and depressed. I poured my heart out to you uh, sitting in this barber chair and you're a churchgoer and you claim to be born again, a born again Christian, and you never even once invited me to church. You never once told me about Jesus. You never once told me that I could be saved. You, you never once offered to pray with me. And he said, I just got up and walked out of the barbershop. Then he said, pastor, I've come to you because this man's a member of your church and I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. He said, if you tell me that I owe that man an apology, I'm going to go to him this afternoon and get it taken care of. The pastor looked at him and he said, Sir, I don't know if you owe him an apology or not. But I do know that he and this church owe you an apology. You know, I believe it is no accident that the book of Matthew ends with this pitiful, lonely, discouraged Defeated little band of men, 11 guys, standing on a lonely mountainside in Galilee with the resurrected Christ. And Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, I have a simple little job for you. Conquer the Roman Empire. Just this, nothing much. Bring Rome to its knees. Infiltrate the Roman army. Bring down the temples to Diana and replace them with churches. So it's, it's nothing much. Lay down your lives. Die. Preach. Go. Teach. Make disciples. Baptize. Not, not much. Plant the name of Jesus on every continent of the globe across oceans that you've never even heard of. You know, if you think back from that moment on the mountain there with those men, over all the weeks that we've been studying the book of Matthew, think about this. I mean, remember Matthew Levi? Talked about him, this cold-eyed tax collector sitting behind his desk, and Jesus just walks up and says, follow me. And he got up and he followed Jesus. But I wonder if he had any idea 
that would lead him to that moment, seeing Jesus crucified, raised from the dead, standing there on the mountainside with Jesus in Galilee, with Jesus saying, I want you to change the world. Jesus walking on a beach, looking into the eyes of a big, loud mouth, impulsive, profane fisherman. And, and he said, I know who you are. You're Simon, the son of Jonah, but you will be Peter. You'll be the rock. I wonder if any of them had any idea what it meant. I wonder if any of us do. Are your sins forgiven? Are you washed in the blood of the eternal lamb? Is your name in the lamb's book of life? If Christ returned for his church today, today, are you ready to go? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you believe that he is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth? That, that he has all authority that, that's been given to him? Is he meeting you at the point of your real life? Are you worshiping him even if it's mixed with doubt from time to time? Are you growing in grace? Are you meeting him like the disciples on the lonely hillsides of Galilee? Are you walking with Jesus? If so, great! Because then the last verse belongs to you too. I'm going to read again for verse 19. Go over therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here it is. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, go make disciples of all nations. Oh, and by the way, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. You know, here at the end of this book of Matthew, after all these weeks of study, I am commissioning you tonight. Whether you're here in person or you're watching on the live stream, I'm commissioning you tonight. And I'm not asking you to be Billy Graham. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I believe it is the will of God that every person in this church in fact, every person in every church, in every city, in every country in the world, to some extent or another, in some way or another, given the limitations of talent, boldness, ability, and everything else, every Christian must, somehow or another, begin to act on the command, go therefore. Now that may be just to be bringing the four-year-old that lives next door to Sunday school. That may be to witness boldly in the marketplace or at work. It may be to bring a family to church where Christ may save them. It may be giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. You know what that means? That means you don't just give the cup of cold water, but you tell them about Jesus when you do it. You know, I've seen people say, well, you know, I'm going to give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, but they don't ever say the name of Jesus to them. I've I, I made a habit over the years often when I do something for someone, I say, I want you to understand, I want to, I'm going to do this, but I want you to know why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because I'm a nice guy. I'm doing it because Jesus loves you, and he wants me to tell you that he loves you. And this is one way I can show you that. Maybe something is that. but I'm just saying that often it is so simple. So simple. We make it complicated, but it's so simple. Is Jesus alive? Is, is Jesus alive? Has he risen from the dead? Has he redeemed us? Is he the Lord of the universe? Has he commanded us to go? 
I just want to obey that. That's all. I just want to obey. I want to pray for you in closing that Christ will give you an obedient, energetic heart to go into all the world. Whether that means going across the ocean or going across the street. That God would give you a heart to say, because all authority has been given to you, because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because I know who you are, because you are my sovereign Lord, therefore I will go. I will go. I'll tell somebody. I'll love somebody in Jesus' name. I'll do whatever I can to make Jesus famous. I want to pray for you. Bow your head. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, I don't know about anybody else, but I feel so challenged in my spirit, Lord, because I feel like, like I can do more, that I can take this command more seriously, that I can... Uh, intentionally show the love of Christ to people around me, whether it's inviting my neighbor, whether it's inviting a friend, whether it's inviting a new person that I meet uh, to, to church, or, or whether it's sitting down and having a conversation about Jesus, whatever it is, God, I know that you can use every one of us. It doesn't, it's not about how we're wired or we're, how we're gifted or what we can or can't do, because God, you wired us all it, it, specifically the way you wanted us, and there are people that every one of us can touch. And Lord, I pray you would help us just to have a renewed focus. Give us obedient and energetic hearts to say, I will go. I will go, therefore, because I know who Jesus is. And Lord, I pray that you would go before, set up divine appointments. I pray, God, that you would use us and use our actions, our words, everything about us. Make us more like Christ. Let us reflect your love, your glory, your grace, so that people will be drawn to you. And we give you thanks. We give you praise for all of these things. In the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.